Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Today we're going to take a little uh, side step away from our usual topics of mental health and substance use disorders to talk about the connection between Lyme disease and autism. And the reason that we wanted to do this show is that what we have found over the course of the last couple of years in treating some of our participants who have had Lyme disease is that Lyme disease really mimics some of the mental health disorders that we see. And people who have Lyme disease are often in chronic pain and have come to us with chronic pain issues as well. So I'm very happy today to introduce our two guests. Tammy Duncan is the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Lyme-Induced Autism Foundation located in Corona, California. The foundation focuses on education, awareness, and research into the connection between Lyme disease and autism. Uh, Tammy co-founded the organization with her son, after her son was diagnosed with autism, and she with Lyme disease. She is the host of an online radio show called The Lyme Autism Connection on Autism One Radio and the author of several articles and editorials published in Lyme Times, Public Health Alert, The Lyme Autism Connection, a monthly column in the Townsend, New- in the Townsend Letter. And then we have also with us uh, Brian Rossner, who is the author of four books focusing on Lyme disease education. He is internationally recognized author, educator, and speaker. His articles and books on Lyme disease have received critical acclaim from patients and physicians in more than 15 countries. A journalist by trade, his writing turned toward Lyme disease after he contracted the stubborn infection in 2001. Brian's work goes beyond educating the world about Lyme disease. He is also active in the Lyme disease community itself. In 2003, Brian founded an online Lyme disease support group, which currently has more than 2,400 participating members. Welcome, both of you, to One Hour at a Time. Thanks for having us. Yep, thank you. I guess there's so much to talk about. I'm I'm not quite sure where to start, but maybe we could start with a little bit about what is Lyme disease and how do people contract it, and is there any part of the country that you're you're safe from getting it? Yeah, that's a great place to start. In order to understand the connection between Lyme disease and autism, you really have to start with Lyme disease. There's basically two viewpoints on Lyme disease, and one of them is that it's a very simple infection, simple to catch and simple to cure, and that it's transmitted uh, from tick bites to humans in endemic areas such as Connecticut, Vermont, Rhode Island. And that is true. However, there is another Lyme disease that most people don't really know about, but that is proven scientifically, and that is a much more complicated, much more nuanced form of Lyme disease, and there are a lot of complexities that we really need to talk about. I'll hit on, hit on them quickly just so we can um, get down the road, but basically Lyme disease is not just transmittable by a tick bite. There are other ways for transmitting the disease. Other insects can transmit it. Um, you can catch it through breast milk. You can catch it uh, by transfer from the placenta uh, from a mother to a baby during pregnancy. Um, And even the ticks that do transmit Lyme disease, sometimes they're so small, they're called nymph ticks, they're the baby ticks, that you can't even see them on your skin and you don't even remember a tick bite. Uh, Another complicated aspect of Lyme disease, which you had already mentioned, Mary, is that 
it can mimic uh, a number of other diseases and many mental disorders as well, obsessive-compulsive disorder, schizophrenia, autism, depression, bipolar. So this, this very simple Lyme disease turns out to be not all that simple in that it can really uh, mimic a lot of other diseases. Another problem with Lyme disease is that there are, there are no good diagnostic tests for the disease. So often what happens is a patient will go into their doctor's office, they'll get tested for Lyme disease, the test will be negative, and they may actually have the disease. In my case, it took five tests in, until I had a positive, and my fifth test was actually a very, very strong positive. So uh, the Centers for Disease Control report that there are only about 20,000 cases of Lyme disease per year, but many experts in the field and many physicians and professionals are actually estimating that to be uh, 200,000 or more cases. And the last point um, that I'll talk about is the difficulty in treating it. Um, many people believe, you know, the common belief even among physicians is that 10 days of antibiotics will cure the infection, but actually uh, a lot of published research has shown that uh, this is just not the case in Lyme disease. Even after treating it with, with 10 days of antibiotics or even more extensive antibiotic treatment, it can really persist inside the body and cause these kinds of chronic afflictions. Um, how often, how, well, how, you've mentioned that it took a few times to get diagnosed before you were, um, you were tested a few times. How often or how long after you've been infected does it, does it show? Well, that, that's another part of the nuance of Lyme disease. You know, Western medicine likes to put these diseases into neat little boxes and say, you know, exactly two weeks after a tick bite, this will happen, or, you know, the rash will happen. Lyme disease is known for this bullseye rash. But that just doesn't happen with Lyme disease. There have been studies that show that after 24 hours after a tick bite, so that's just one day, it can get into the central nervous system and cause symptoms like headache, lightheadedness, um, even depression, memory loss. But in other cases, you can get a tick bite and not show symptoms for up to six months, and, and, and you may not even have the rash. So this is an area where, um, where Western medicine likes to neatly categorize and classify these diseases and make them very simple. Lyme disease just doesn't fit into that box, and there, there really is no accurate uh, predictor for, for the disease, and so that's what makes it so complicated. Is there a normal course that the disease will take with everyone, or is it individualized? Well, it is individualized. They, they divide it into three stages, um, stage one, stage two, and stage three, and, you know, it progresses into, into, into more and more debilitating um, symptoms. But really, sometimes people start with stage three and never even experience the stage one symptoms. And could you elaborate a little bit about what you experience in those different stages? Yeah, sure. The, the stage one, the classic, uh, classic Lyme disease is, um, basically a bullseye rash where you get a red circular rash in the place where the tick bit you, um, maybe some joint pain and some flu-like symptoms. That's stage one. And stage two, it can move into, uh, systemic infection which affects organs, digestive tract, liver, heart, uh, lungs, and, you know, of course this can manifest in a number of ways. And then stage three is the neurological disease where, you know, you start getting into these neurological disorders such as autism and schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder, and, and, you know, these horrible diseases. Um, but, again, it is important to emphasize that they don't happen in that order all the time. That's just the way the textbooks like to break it down to make it easy for students to understand, but it really just doesn't happen that way. 
Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about what autism is and then the connection between the two. So, Tammy, could you tell us a little bit about autism? Sure. Um, autism is a developmental disorder um, that um, children are diagnosed with usually by the age of three to five years old. And um, a, psychiatri- a psychiatrist or a neurologist generally makes the diagnosis. And there are um, several, it's called autism spectrum disorder because every child is a little bit different in their symptoms and how, um, how just their whole symptom mix that they have. But in general, in order to get an autism diagnosis, there needs to be some sort of um, delay in speech development, whether they may, the children may be nonverbal or um, delayed and speak, start, begin speaking in a later time, maybe later than the average child at that age. And then the other thing is uh, social skills deficits. Mm-hmm. They have a hard time relating to other children or their parents. Uh, it's pretty much a myth that they're not lovable towards their parents because we've pretty much found that they are very lovable, um, but they seem to be in their own world and have a hard time playing appropriately with other children and um, don't understand social cues, um, little innuendos. They don't understand sarcasm or joking and um, things like that. Many of the children also have uh, problems with um, their sensory system. Maybe they're very sensitive to light and sound, um, different noises. They have a hard time concentrating and focusing when they're in a noisy environment. And um, as, and then light and the light sensitivity as well, where bright lights may actually feel like it's hurting the child, so they may um, start screaming or feel like they're in pain when they're exposed to different lights. Um, the sound sensitivity also, they have very, um, many of the children have very sensitive hearing where they can actually hear the buzzing of the fluorescent lights where none of us can hear it. And those things may cause them to have behaviors. They may, you know, hide under their desk in school or they may cover their ears. And when they have these sensory issues, um, the light, sound, and hearing uh, hearing sensitivities, visual sensitivities, it sometimes produces um, what they feel pain when that's happening. And so when they feel this pain, it shows in their behavior. So many teachers will think that they're just misbehaving or that type of thing or can't control themselves or are hyper, but in fact they're in pain. Um, So that's part of it. The main thing for an autism diagnosis, though, is the speech delay or lack of speech and the social skills issues. And um, right now it's considered an epidemic in the United States and other countries as well, um, like the U.K. It's one out of 150 children in the United States are diagnosed with autism. That's just autism. We have what we call autism spectrum disorder as well, where there's some other diagnoses that fit under there, like Asperger's syndrome in PDD-NOS, um, which is pervasive developmental disorder. Unfortunately, good number, um, good accounting is not being done with the Asperger's and the PDD-NOS, so we actually don't know how many of those children there are but we do know that there's one out of 150 with full-blown autism. And um, in, in the Great Britain, it's one out of 80. So it's, um, it's just growing and growing, whereas, you know, 10-plus years ago, it was one out of 10,000 children were affected. Do we so, know why it's growing? 
There, there's a lot of different theories on that, and nobody will agree on why it's growing. Um, the CDC has said it's some sort of environmental issue. Um, many parents um, believe that it's the, in, the increased dosage of vaccines. Um, we see it as a combination where, you know, we've found a high percentage of the children with autism testing positive for Lyme disease. In fact, it's roughly around 20 to 30 percent. And um, so there's a lot of aspects involved, possibly infection, possibly increased vaccine exposure, debilitated immune systems because of infections. There's a lot of aspects going on there. And we'll be right back to talk more about the Autism Line Connection with Tammy Duncan and Brian Rosner. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out. And you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. Prior to going to break, Tammy was talking to us about the increased incidence of autism from one in, what was it, 10,000? One in 10,000 to, to one, one in 150. 150. That's like epidemic. Yes. And um, could you explain to our listeners the connection between autism and Lyme disease? Yes. Um, actually, what happened is this connection was pretty much discovered by mothers, mothers that um, ended up coming up and having their own illness and being tested and coming up positive for Lyme disease. And the mom started talking, 
and saying, hey, you know, my son has autism, and then my son has autism. (laughs) And pretty soon they started making the connection of, well, us moms that are having Lyme disease are coming up with children with autism. So then they started testing the kids. Lo and behold, the autistic children were coming up positive for Lyme disease. And so there was a whole online community of families that had found each other and were trying to muddle through all of this. And that's kind of when I came in and um, was um, wanting to learn about this because I was starting to have a lot of unexplained symptoms myself. And they convinced me, you know, get yourself and your son tested for Lyme. So that's what we did. And I came up positive, and then I said, okay, I'm going to test my kid too. And he came up positive. And so we ended up searching and searching for um, what treatments to do, and there just wasn't a lot of information. So we formed the foundation, um, LIA Foundation, L-I-A Foundation, and that's where um, we held a physician's think tank and started talking to the doctors. We brought um, doctors from the autism community and the Lyme disease community together. Lo and behold, they had been seeing this for years, but nobody was really talking about it. And so from that first meeting, um, the think tank, we um, started doing research and compiling research, and that's where we found that about 20 to 30% of the autism population were coming up positive. And when you calculate that out, that's roughly around 150 to 200,000 children that would be affected. And those numbers, I mean, we don't have that many that know they have Lyme disease. Those numbers are primarily undiagnosed at this point. So we're trying to get the word out to parents of children with autism to say, hey, get your kid tested. Look into this. This could be why your child developed autism. Because when you look at the connection between mothers and children, since we know that Lyme can be passed from, you know, um, into the fetus from the mother, it's very likely that these children are getting Lyme not from an, an initial tick bite or a mosquito or a flea or whatever. They're getting it from their mom, and unknowingly, the mother, of course, has no idea that she would be passing something on, and there's not education out there to warn the moms ahead of time. We're trying to work on that. But um, so unknowingly passing this infection to their baby which then what Lyme does is it just messes and makes your immune system dysfunctional so that when other environmental triggers are coming into play, like the vaccines or um, exposure to pesticides or different things, those things can easily trigger an active Lyme infection. And on a developing brain, on a baby that's just learning their skills, that can be devastating to the neurological system. So that's how it's going about. <laughs> that's how it's happening. Um, you bring up so many things I want to ask you about. Uh, first of all is that um, prior to reading your book, I really didn't understand that Lyme disease could be um, contracted through a secondary means. I mean, you don't have to get bitten by a tick. You can have it. You can cross the placental barrier. You can have it through um, exchanging, um, like, like through sex and exchanging bodily fluids. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's very well known. It's not. It's talked about and people, you know, um, it's not talked about in the mainstream medical world, but it's definitely talked about, you know, in the Lyme community. And we're trying to get the awareness out about that as well. But um, there are many um, physicians that just don't want to acknowledge that Lyme is a problem. And so some some of that information gets squashed a little bit. 
Is it is it transferable in blood transfusion? Um, I believe they don't. T- maybe Brian can chime in. I know that they don't test the blood supply for for Lyme or some of the co-infections like Babesia that kind of go hand in hand with it. So that is another transmission method. And Brian, chime in if I'm wrong on that. Yeah, you know, there. I haven't seen any hard science on that, but it, but you know, if you use logic and if you use what we know about Lyme disease bacteria, this bacteria is a very hardy bacteria. It can survive. Uh, being frozen, being heated, being exposed to hydrogen peroxide, being exposed to distilled water. So, you know, if you if you understand how hardy and how survival-oriented um, the bacteria is, then, then you really would have to guess that it, it could possibly be um, transmitted through the blood. And, you know, Lyme disease is such a politically charged disease right now in current times. I suspect in 20 or 30 years it'll, it won't be as politically charged. They'll have already figured all this stuff out. But basically what, what Tammy and I are talking about today is the cutting edge of Lyme research, which the really, you know, forward-thinking doctors and researchers already know all of this stuff, but the mainstream body of knowledge isn't really caught up yet. And so, you know, a lot, a lot of this stuff, you're really only going to be observing this or, or finding this information on the doctors on the front lines. I'll give you an example. A doctor named Charles Ray Jones right now is under a lot of pressure from state medical boards. He has treated over 10,000 uh, children with um, Lyme disease. Not all of them have autism, um, but he is one of those forward-thinking physicians who, have, who has observed this. You can actually watch a free uh, short video of, of his uh, speech at, at one of Tammy's recent conferences on uh, our website, which is limebook.com. It's um, L-Y-M-E-B-O-O-K.com. But he is, he's a great example of one of the doctors that, that really are observing this, even though, you know, the rest of the medical community is a little bit behind the curve. How come this is a politically charged issue? <clears throat> well, you know, really, that's an interesting question. And the best answer right now is that the doctors who had it wrong about Lyme disease and didn't really uh, get the right information are so invested in, in their point of view that it, it would be much easier for them or much less costly, or so they think, to just stand by their guns rather than to acknowledge, um, you know, the, the, the controversy. But, but let me just give you an example of how controversial this is. A lot of people think that, that the, the chronic Lyme disease viewpoint or, or you know, the new forward-thinking viewpoint is, is very fringe and very sort of renegade and not really, not really that wide. Well, that's just not true. The new viewpoint actually is so is becoming so well accepted and becoming so uh, unavoidable that um, the attorney general for the state of Connecticut, his name is uh, Richard Blumenthal, he actually filed a lawsuit against a government agency uh, recently to redefine um, what Lyme disease is. And so this isn't just you know a few you know patient advocacy groups or or, or mad parents. This is becoming a really big topic, and, and you know, it's, it's going to change the course of, of medical history in the next couple of years. You know, of course, the problem is in the meantime, before those changes happen, we still want to be able to help and treat and, and you know, heal children and people affected by this, and that's sort of the whole uh, goal of Tammy's uh, Lyme-Induced Autism Foundation is, is, hey, in the meantime, before this becomes mainstream accepted science, what can we do now? How can we help now? It would seem like getting tested would be one way that people can help, or and is, is that effective? 
Yeah, that is one way. What we're trying to do is encourage all of the families to get tested if they have a child with autism in their family. But to go a step further and something that we're initiative that we're going to start working on is preconception. Um, if we're ever going to cut this stuff off at the knees, cut autism off at the knees, if an infection is, in fact, one of the either causes or factors involved in children developing autism, we need to test the mother's health. Um, before they conceive. And so any young women that are planning on conceiving in the near future, I would definitely encourage them to get the Lyme test as well as, you know, an infectious disease panel of tests, um, look at their heavy metal um, load, that type of thing, so that they can get their health at the optimum level before conception. And I truly believe that that if, if, I mean, it's a huge undertaking to even think about this, but um, if, if we can shift the thinking of society into um, to doing that, I really think that we'd see a reduction in the cases of autism. And um, I do want to make one point, though, that with the families that we've been working with and that are kind of in our network, we have many children who have actually recovered, lost their autism diagnosis and became a diagnosis which meant they had no more symptoms whatsoever. They look like every other kid in every other class, perfectly normal and healthy. This has happened once they have treated their Lyme disease. So this is a really important point because that means that there's hope for parents. We call this the autism puzzle. There's so many different pieces and different facets of these children and their illness and all the different um, things that they have to do and go through and therapies they need and um, supplements they need and all this kind of stuff. But if we can uncover that one piece that is causing most of the trouble and we can heal that, then the children can heal and they can live a normal life. Um, How effective is the testing for Lyme disease? Uh, Brian, do you want to cover that? You want me? To- um, yeah, you know, well, we we sort of already hit on that, and that you know that's one of the biggest problems is that it, it's not it's not extremely effective. Now, I I say that mostly, um, you know, in terms of adults. You know, Tammy, you might want to cover how effective it is in children. It's not effective at all in children. Actually, we've just added a new part to our website, where um, and the website's liafoundation.org. Um, in our testing section, it explains all about the testing, but the new section has to do with um, preparing before the testing because what we're finding with the children specifically, and this also with the adults, but specifically the children, is that these tests need the immune system to respond in order to get an accurate result. And the children's immune systems are just damaged and they're not responding to the test, so they're not able to show a true positive properly. And so we've got actually a protocol on there that um, we um, recently went to a conference where one of the leading Lyme experts allowed us to put his information on our website of exactly what to do before you get tested to optimize the testing results. And um, so that's on there, and it's basically what he talked about was like a provocation or a challenge and trying to do some treatment for a few weeks before taking the test. So then it kind of stirs up, the kind of wakes up the immune system, gets them to start um, activating and then when the blood is tested or the urine is tested or whatever, um, you have a higher chance of getting a positive. And, in fact, from this conference that we went to, 
the physician, his name is Dietrich Klinghart, he's from Washington State, he's finding about 73% of his um, children with autism are coming up positive for Lyme when they do this um, protocol before testing. So our 20 to 30% numbers may be pretty low. That's just based on just test them all and let's see what we get uh-huh. as opposed to let's activate the immune system and see um, see what we get there. So it could, the numbers could be much higher. But so that's why we're recommending a little bit of a treatment trial um, before testing. Um, and also it helps the parents save money so they're not doing five tests like Brian had to do in order to get a positive, and that's a lot of money. Right. having to do that. I happened to hit the jackpot and my son and I were positive first time out. But that's not the case. We have many families that um, are just continuing. They know it's there. Mom has Lyme. You know, they've got uh, all the symptoms to boot, but that test is just not showing up. Um, and so um, many times when they do this provocation, then they can, um, they'll get that positive that they know has been there and the doctors have known. They just haven't had the proof on the actual lab paper. In your book, The Lyme Autism Connection, you talk about um, the infections do, which I would think would be kind of confusing for, for practitioners who aren't used to diagnosing Lyme disease. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, one of the one of the interesting things about this situation is that when the immune system becomes weakened um, and, you know, Lyme disease becomes established, and Tammy talked about the vaccine connection too, which, you know, the mercury and the other immunological substances and vaccines can weaken the immune system too. Think of it as a door, and once the door is open and the immune system is weakened, then almost any kind of opportunistic infection can become established in the body, and this really can be confusing, and, and we don't want to say that, uh, you know, Lyme disease is the only infection that is involved in autism because it's not true. There's all these other infections um, that are also present, mycoplasma, candida. Um, but, you know, once that door gets opened, uh, you know, that, that it's, it's really easy to get those infections to be established. And I also wanted to go back and hit on a quick point, uh, Mary, during the break we were talking about. Um, well, we, we were talking that? about... Can we hold that thought, and we'll pick it up right after this next break. Sure. Thank you, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel.
your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, Prior to going to break, Brian had a couple points he wanted to make. So, Brian... It's all yours. Yeah, sure, Mary. You know, during one of the breaks, we were talking about the rapid increase of autism over the last 10 or 15 years. Tammy mentioned that it went from uh, one kid in about 10,000 in the United States to one kid in about 150 in the United States, and there's really something going on. And one of the clues when I first hooked up with uh, Tammy Duncan to write our book, I was a little bit skeptical about the connection, and it took a while for me to, you know, really come on board as an investigative journalist that this had, you know, objective scientific foundation. But one of the things that immediately caught my attention was when you superimpose a chart of Lyme disease cases over the last 15 years chronologically, you know, the number of cases per year, and you superimpose that with a chart of the number of autism cases per year over the last same time period, they, they look strikingly similar. So the rise of autism and the rise of Lyme disease have really kind of happened at the same time. Now, someone might say, well, that doesn't prove anything. They, they, they could, it could just be a coincidence. And, and of course, that's true. Statistically speaking, it doesn't prove anything. But there's another statistical factor that comes into play here that, that makes you raise your eyebrows even more. And that is that if you look at the geographic prevalence of the two diseases, in other words, what parts of the United States uh, have the highest rates of Lyme disease and the highest rates of autism, those two happen to be a striking overlap. The, uh, the top 10 states for Lyme disease are also the top uh, 10 states for autism. I'm looking at page 147 in our book here, and uh, what we did was we statistically overlapped all of the cases, and I'm looking, you know, at Minnesota, Maine, Oregon, New Jersey, Indiana, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Wisconsin, Maryland. Those are just some of the, the top states, and, and those states have, have a very high rate of Lyme disease and a very high rate of autism. And if you break that down even to a city and a county level, uh, there's a lot of, of similarities there, too. So that was one area that really started to um, provide evidence for the Lyme autism connection. Just to summarize here, um, you know, we're, we're a little more than halfway through the, the hour, and I just wanted to kind of summarize some of the points uh, that we've made. There are basically four areas of evidence for the Lyme autism connection, and these are, are very, you know, scientifically validated areas. The first we talked about quite a bit, um, the clinicians and physicians observing this connection firsthand in the doctor's office. That's where real medicine and real science happens is on the front lines. Um, again, you can watch a couple of videos of doctors talking about specifically the Lyme autism connection on uh, our website, which is LymeBook.com. It's just L-Y-M-E-B-O-O-K.com. Uh, the second important area to consider is the, the families and uh, mothers like Tammy who themselves have Lyme disease and have autistic children who also tested positive. This is, this is a, a broad area where a lot of mothers and a lot of children have experienced this, so that is another important area. Um, the third area of evidence for the Lyme autism connection is the one that I just talked about which is the uh, geographic and the chronological uh, comparison that, that line up. And then 
The fourth area is the um, objective laboratory data and uh, a couple of different studies done by LEA Foundation and some other organizations have found that there is a, a statistically significant um, testing of uh, autistic children for Lyme disease testing positive. It's statistically significant in that if you test the, the general population, um, there's a much higher rate of Lyme disease in the autistic population, and, and that becomes statistically significant uh, by mathematical function. There is no you know, disputing that. That's nobody's opinion. It is a statistically significant correlation. Uh, for example, uh, Garth Nicholson, Ph.D., who is the uh, founder of the Institute for Molecular Medicine, he observed a slightly higher uh, than 27% rate of uh, Lyme disease and mycoplasmas and a couple of other infections in autistic children. He has a Ph.D. in biochemistry and cellular biology from UC San Diego. So this, this is not, you know, just just anybody. This is a guy who has a lot of experience um, testing that. So it's, it's important to remember that the Lyme Autism Connection really does have some very, you know, solid science behind it and, uh, and a lot of very compelling issues, which is what sort of attracted me, you know, as a Lyme disease journalist um, to, to this whole project. You know, writing this book took me about six months full time, and it was only after I really started looking into these issues that, that it really became a good place to invest my time because it really is a very, very uh, convincing set of data. Is there a cure for Lyme disease? Um, at this point, some people do re recover completely, like Tammy mentioned. Other people gain a degree of functionality. Some people get 90 95% and are able to live normal lives, but there are so many complicating factors and so many variables that you know, it, it just really depends. In, in my own case, um, you know, I mentioned that I that me having Lyme disease is what got me involved in this in the first place. I have gotten to about 95% well, and uh, I live a you know very normal life. I still have to do certain treatments and certain things to maintain my health. But you also have to remember, I went about seven years undiagnosed, and during those seven years, you know, the Lyme disease infection just continued to ravage my body more and more. So hopefully in the future when people become more aware of this through, you know, radio programs and other venues such as this one, hopefully people will begin to catch the infection early and it will increase uh, their odds of recovering. Now, I, you mentioned I wrote four books on Lyme disease and a couple of those books focus on alternative treatments. That's a, that's a discussion for another day, but there are a number of, um, you know, alternative approaches and even alternative approaches that, mixed with conventional medicine that, that really give people a really good chance at, at, you know, getting a lot of their health back. Well, we can both agree that two to three weeks of antibiotics isn't going to do the trick. What does do the trick, Tammy? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, usually with the children, it, you know, parents will go down one of two routes. They'll either go down the antibiotic route, and many times that includes long-term antibiotics. Could be a couple months. Um, some children that are very severe have had to go a couple years and then have experienced incredible results. Um, however, many of the children with autism, the parents really are not wanting to go down the antibiotic route um, because the children have other infections that can pop up when they're on, you know, like candida or, you know, yeast infections and things like that when they're on the antibiotics. So there are some different herbal protocols, and Brian does list them in his um, top ten treatment book. But, um, you know, there's, there's several herbal pro protocols, Chinese herbal medicine, 
homeopathy that um, children are seeing relief from their symptoms with. So I have on my website a section um, talking about the antibiotic protocol, but then also talking about different natural treatment options. And that is um, good for adults as well as well as the children. What about diet? Diet's extremely important. One thing that, you know, um, in the autism world, you know, a lot of the children are on a special diet where they go on what they call the gluten-free, casein-free diet. So they take all of the gluten, all of the wheat and the flours um, out of the diet, and then all of the casein, which is anything milk, milk protein, dairy, all of that out of the diet. And many times, um, actually I think it's almost 70% of the kids see improvement, not improvement enough to recover, but, you know, good improvements. And when you have a child with autism, you'll take any improvement you can get. And one thing that I've noticed with the Lyme community is that some of the Lyme patients are starting to notice that if they do the same diet, they also see some relief in symptoms. So we recommend a um, a diet free of gluten and dairy, um, free of processed foods and sugars, a nice organic natural diet of meats, fruits, vegetables, um, kind of going back to the old days. <laughs> and um, many times that will really help with some of the GI symptoms that um, the Lyme patients can have, kids and adults. Now, um, you've, obviously we've talked a lot about autism and uh, Lyme disease, but what if you've also mentioned like bipolar disorder? How does Lyme disease mimic other mental illnesses? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, uh, you know, when they do MRI uh, images of the brain and CAT scan images of the brain, they find a lot of similarities between uh, people with Lyme disease and people with those other illnesses. <clears throat> and there are two primary mechanisms of brain damage that happen when you have Lyme disease. One is inflammation. Uh, you have this uh, active bacterial infection in your brain, and the brain becomes inflamed, and that inflammation causes, you know, dysfunction in how the brain functions. Um, some extreme examples of this can be seen a lot of times people with head injuries who go to the ER, you know, they have uh, brain inflammation and they can be confused and disoriented. Of course, with them it doesn't last very long because their brain heals after after their injury, but with Lyme disease that inflammation is always there because the bacterial infection is there, so it goes on and on. Uh, the second major uh, process that happens is the Lyme disease bacteria releases a neurotoxin. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the most poisonous, poisonous toxins known to man, and it's releasing it inside your brain, which is pretty alarming. And so this neurotoxin um, is very toxic to all brain functions and can lead to uh, a lot of different types of, of dysfunction in the brain. It is what we call a fat-soluble toxin. There's two types of toxins, water-soluble and fat-soluble. And the fat-soluble toxins are really the worst kind because the brain, as you may know, is comprised mostly of, of fatty tissue. It's a lot of cholesterol. So the, uh, the brain uh, really absorbs these toxins like a sponge. And uh, once these toxins sort of sit inside the brain and saturate the brain, um, they, they create a lot of the same problems um, as, as, as bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. So a lot of people with Lyme disease have those. And, you know, there are miraculous stories of people completely recovering from these supposedly incurable diseases. When I was researching to write my books, I found a lot of these stories in the mainstream medical journals. You know, American Association of uh, Neurological Health was one organization, government organization, that published these studies. Um, and so it, it, it's, there, it's all in the journals. It's all there to see that when you treat 
uh, Lyme disease in in a lot of these people with mental illnesses, they they get better. Now, of course, not every mental illness is caused by that. There's a number of things that cause mental illnesses, but in 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 a significant percentage of cases, Lyme disease is is one of the the probable causes. Um, where is the best place to go to get tested? Is it any community laboratory, or are there specific laboratories that are more adept at, at testing for Lyme disease? And how would people find it? There are definitely more specific labs, um, not discounting the other ones, but there are certain labs that test for more strains of the bacteria and more, um, uh, I, without getting too technical, more antibodies. Um, and um, you can find that in our testing section online, um, liafoundation.org. We have a complete guide to testing on there that lists all of the labs that people would need to use. And we'll be right back with our final segment on the Lyme Autism Connection. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Back, everybody. I guess we've all kind of learned in the last 45 minutes this is a very complicated uh, disease that is easily overlooked and not well understood. So having said that, Tammy, you were talking about uh, specific laboratories where that are more proficient in testing for this, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. And then are there, how would somebody go about finding a provider that really knows how to treat Lyme disease? Yeah, um, these are two topics that are a little tough, but... And as far as the labs go, like I said, we have this guide on our um, our website that talks about what labs to use um, that are generally considered to have a higher standard, um, kind of the gold standard. But one in particular that most of the Lyme literate doctors like to use is a lab out of California called Igenix, and um, it's I-G-E-N-E-X dot com. And there's also a lab out of Arizona that does a pretty good job of, treat, of testing for some of the other infections that are kind that ticks also pass at the same time, um, Bartonella, Babesia, some of those. And that lab is called Fry Laboratories. And like I said, it's all in our handout that I've got that anybody can download and print out and take to their doctor and say, I want this one. And um, hopefully they'll be willing, you know, to listen and um, consider doing that. 
But um, in order to find a doctor, now we've kind of broken down some of the doctors that are treating Lyme and autism, and I have a list of those on my website. Um, But if you need to find a specific, if you're an adult and are looking to get tested for you, not having the autism aspect in there, then um, you can go to the Lyme Disease Association org website and ask for a referral. That's one way. Um, another way is to join some of the online Yahoo groups. Um, there's a lot of different online forums, and one of the best ways all of us have really found a way to get information is to connect with other people that are in the same boat that you are, whether it be other parents or other adults that are also chronically ill and are on this kind of path and Lyme disease, and ask for their recommendations. Who are you seeing? What kind of experiences have you had? Do Ask the questions, do they typically do all antibiotics, or will they kind of intermingle alternative medicine in with it? So online groups, I think, are a great way. Going to the Lyme Disease Association and asking for a referral is another way. And um, if you've got the Lyme autism, that's a real specialized um, issue. And so we have some doctors on our website as well. And like I said, parent groups, um, parent support is extremely, extremely important. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, your own personal experience with this and how your son and your, yourself are doing? Yeah, definitely. Um, when I got the Lyme disease diagnosis, I swore up and down, you know, I've never been bitten by a tick. I even joke, you know, I don't camp, I hotel. Okay, I'm not, you know, around ticks or anything like that. And just goes to show how, you know, we're trained in society to, to listen and, and believe everything, <laughs> you know, anything that's on the news, like, okay, that's fact. But um, when I really started getting involved, um, talking to other doctors, when I really thought about it, I thought, you know, I did have a ringworm-looking rash when I was about 19, and then a couple months later ended up in the hospital with 104 fever, and they thought I had meningitis. And you tell that to a Lyme doctor, and they just laugh, like, well, of course, that's when you got Lyme disease. So then basically before my diagnosis I went undiagnosed for about 14 or 15 years. And all, of course, through both of my pregnancies and all of that, luckily my daughter um, did not contract it that we know of. We have not been able to get her to test positive, and um, she doesn't have symptoms per se. But I can say that her immune system is not perfect. But um, as far as we know, she doesn't have it. But, you know, my son did, and... The Lyme disease diagnosis for my son ended up coming at a pretty good time because we had gone down this road of biomedical treatment for autism, doing the special diets, doing chelation therapy and vitamin B12 shots and a lot of different treatments, and we got a lot of great improvements from him. He was doing really, really good, but we hit a plateau where I could not get any more improvements no matter what we did, um, even very expensive hyperbaric oxygen therapy, you know, we couldn't get any more improvements out of him. And I've always been one that's like, no, I'm not settling. I want him, you know, as healthy as, I want him to be the boy and the man he's supposed to be. And so let's just keep doing what we can. Let's keep digging under every rock to find the answer. And right then is when the Lyme disease diagnosis came, and I thought, aha, there we go. Now we've got something that we can work on. So since then, we've been working on the infections and um, changed his treatment method, and he's 
come out of that plateau and into a whole new set of improvements. It's an up and down roller coaster. You'll get improvements and then you'll get worse. And it's like this with the adults too. Um, it's up and down, up and down, but it's on a slow path towards um, overall improvement, and that's all you know that matters. And so right now, um, he's taken a he's had a hard couple days, but um, we're getting through it. The kids are so sensitive to anything in the environment, and unfortunately, any you know harsh cleaning chemicals or walking by and having a bleach smell somewhere or pesticides, they can all trigger um, you know the infection or a regression of some sort. But you know, definitely, the children and adults can pull through that and improve much more on the other end once that exposure is cleared out of their body. And so that's where we've been the last couple of days. But overall, when I look at the big picture, I truly, truly feel he is about a year to a year and a half away from full recovery. He's in a regular class with regular kids. He has sleepovers at his friend's house. He, the kids have sleepovers here. He's included in everything um, that all the other kids are. He just has to work extra hard trying to play catch-up and get his speech um, to sound like everybody else and um, read sarcasm and, you know, figure out what a joke is and when's the right time to laugh. Those are the things that he is working on, which in the overall autism world are pretty minor at this point. So I'm actually really, really a positive and really excited about his future. Yep, that's excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. You've both referred to the Lyme community. Could you guys talk a little bit about what you mean? Well, yeah, in you know, since 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 mainstream medicine has largely uh, left us behind as Lyme sufferers, and you know, a lot of the breaking, you know, cutting edge science hasn't really been accepted and applied in the physician's office environment yet. A lot of patients and parents, and even physicians have sort of stuck together with the new research that's coming out and tried to help themselves and tried to help people with that. And so, you know, we, the Lyme community almost sees itself as a little bit, you know, trying to protect itself and heal itself while we're waiting for mainstream science to catch up. And um, so it is sort of a group of people that recognize a health problem and uh, recognize the need for treatment that really hasn't been recognized yet in, in a mainstream way. Um, for more information on Lyme disease and autism, go to the Lyme Induced Autism Foundation website, liafoundation.org. Uh, read the book, The Lyme Autism Connection, by Brian Rossner with Tammy Duncan as uh, a contributing editor. And um, anything else, any place else people can go for help? Those cover it. And you can go to limebook.com to watch those videos of the doctors talking about it, and that'll be helpful too. Well, thank you both very much. This has been a great hour, and certainly it's got me thinking about um, some people that should be tested maybe for Lyme disease. So thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.